All right, Hebrews 11. And this evening we're going to be in verses 11 through 16, Lord willing. Hebrews 11, verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past the childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. So, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country that they had left, now they had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Lord, we right in the middle of this dense passage, Lord, that gives us story after story after story of people who have lived with this remarkable faith. And we count ourselves blessed to be a part of the same spiritual family as these who we are reading about. Lord, as we read this, may we be encouraged both by the faith that they exhibited, Lord, and the confidence that you will increase and you will strengthen our faith as we trust in you and look to you more and more and more as we see the day of your return approaching. Lord, we ask that you would take these truths that we find and as we praise you with gratitude that we stand on the other side of the fulfillment of these promises, not looking forward to promises being fulfilled, but rather looking back to the fulfillment of those promises for our redemption. Lord, we praise you. What a great faith. What a great and mighty Savior that we have in you, Jesus. So, Lord, please, please, we pray. May the words that we study, may the words that we hear, may the words that we think about find their way down into our hearts. That we would be changed and molded by them, Lord seeking to follow after you and your ways all the more. In your name we pray, amen. If you had talked with Lily at all this week, you would have found out what was on her mind all week. Some of you snicker a little bit because you know, because you talked to her this week, and you knew that she was getting a new phone. 
because that's all she could, it seemed like, all she could talk about. She was so excited for this new thing that she was going to get, this new little piece of technology, but to her it was something that meant freedom, something that meant uh, it was cool in her friend's eyes, and all of those kind of things. And as I was reading through this particular passage throughout this week, my mind kept coming back to this one important truth. What does my resting mind find itself focusing on? What does my resting mind, right, when I'm not busy, right? If I'm at work and so this particular week we, I had somebody who passed away that I went and picked up and then I'm the one who took the family on to take care of all of the arrangements and everything. And this happened to be a particular um, feisty family, let's say that. And they had a very particular way of things that they wanted and certain things and hoops that they wanted to have people jump through. And of course, I'm there for them, so I don't mind doing it. Um, but I, as, that's my work, right? I have to focus my mind on that. You know, the Bible says to meditate on the Word of God. And that means not just empty your mind like some Eastern religion. But meditate biblically means focusing your mind on one subject, right? But that takes effort. That takes diligence. That takes work. It's one of the reasons why we typically, if we're wise, we set aside time where we're going to do our regular reading of the scripture so that we can focus on what we're reading. But what does your resting mind think about? Probably a lot of the time, our resting mind goes to our family, right? Certain things that are going on in our household, certain things that are going on with our kids or with maybe perhaps our parents, And as we're not diligent with other things and we stop and we sit down for a minute, our minds go to our families. And that's certainly a good thing for our minds to go to. Sometimes our resting minds might go to something like our finances and we have bills that are stacking up or things that need to be paid or this needs to be taken care of or this thing in the future or something happened and I'm going to have to pay for it. And so when we stop doing what we're doing, our mind goes to that thing and, and that is an indicator oftentimes of sometimes where our affection is. Now, neither one of those things are bad in and of themselves. But I would like to put forward the idea that one thing that we should, in our working as a Christian, in our discipline as a believer, should be working towards is the reframing of our mind, right? The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think one of the things that we want to do in that renewal process is have our affections and our minds so trained on the word of God and on Christ that when we rest, we find our minds frequently. I'm not under any illusion this is going to always be the case. (laughs) But frequently go to the Lord and our trust and our confidence in Him. Lately, my mind, as I'm doing this resting thing, and and I sit back and I think about it, 
Lily's idea with the phone this week made me think, what does my resting mind do? So I tried to exercise that and take several times this week in different areas, a time at work, a time at home, a time I just went out by myself to a place here in town and just sat. And where did my mind go? I found my, I found my mind going to prayer instinctively. My mind would go to be praying about specific people and things and instances. And, and I, I, upon reflection, I think that's, that's a good thing. Here in our passage, I think we find for everybody involved, right? We're looking at several, well, a couple of different groups of people here. Sarah, she's not a group, but her. Abraham, he's not a group, but together they form a group. And then all of these people, meaning the people that have already been referred to, and I think we could make a good strong case for the fact that it includes everybody we're going to read about, right? We're going to read about Moses, we're going to read about um, the other patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, we're going to read about a little bit about Samson and Jephthah and some of these other people. We're not going to take a ton of time on those people, but we are going to read about them. I think they fall into this category too, meaning they could be included here because they were people of faith. And although they were flawed, just like the rest of us, I think we could safely say that their lives could be marked by lives of faith because they would regularly be found upon reflection in their resting mind thinking things about God, thinking about the Lord. Specifically here, thinking about his promises, right? In fact, that phrase we find coming up over and over and over again here in not only the book of Hebrews and in Hebrews 11, but in this context right here that we're looking at tonight, these promises. Now, we come to the first woman who's mentioned in this hall of faith. Now, I want to know, I, note, I want to note, there is a textual difference in the way some of your Bibles might read, and the emphasis is on Abraham, not on Sarah. Meaning Sarah is part of the parentheses. Abraham had the faith even though Sarah was past the childbearing age. Okay? There's some translation that are going to record that. And in the Greek it can be translated that way. So I read. But here we find in our English Bible, and I'm going to stand and depend upon the reliability and the trustworthiness of our translators and believe that this could be about Sarah. And if it's not, this point doesn't change. But Sarah, and we're going to focus on her here, she was past childbearing age, and she was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. Now, let's go back to Genesis 17, because that's where the story takes place. Genesis 17. Now, most of you, if you're familiar with Genesis, when you think of chapter 17, your mind immediately goes to joy of all joys, circumcision. (laughs) But there's more to this than that. The point of the circumcision is the covenant of God. And the covenant of God is what we're looking at here, these promises that are made. 
So the point of the passage isn't just circumcision. The point is God's reiterating, reinstituting, regiving, emboldening Abraham and Sarah with these reissuing of this covenant that he had already made both in chapter 12 and in chapter 15 and now again in chapter 17. Just now the sign is added to it, which is the sign of circumcision. But let's look at the first eight verses and then jump down to verse 15. When Abram was 99 years old. Now, that's old. My mammy, my grandma, turned 99 years old yesterday. Yesterday. I'm going to go see her next week when I go down to Southern California. And I'm going to visit her. And I'm going to go, howdy, mammy. You made it to 99, and she is a spitfire. I'm telling you, she'll probably make it to 100 and something. No, I don't have any doubt. What I doubt is that I'm going to go down there, and all of a sudden I'm going to walk in her room and be like, Woo, Mimi, you made it to 99. How do you feel? And she goes, I feel pregnant. What? Oh, yeah, I'm pregnant, Pat, didn't you know? You're going to have another uncle or aunt. What? (laughs) I have, there's no, that's like, it's silly talk, right? Abram is 99 years old. Don't get your minds in the kerfuddle of, well, they used to live a lot longer back then. No. Yes, way back then, before the flood. But after the flood, no, 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 no. 99 years old. And then the Lord re-showed up to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and may multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God To you and your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Then I will be their God. Jump down to verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, your wife shall not be called Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, A self? Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And... Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. God said, nope. Sarah, your wife, 
shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you, behold, I blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply greatly. And he shall be the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So, here's the promise given. And it says here in our text, it's a summary of everything that's gone on. But it says here that Sarah, who was past the childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. That is, do I need to even say it? That's crazy faith. That is, that is, Remarkable faith. Now granted, it says God appeared to them. (laughs) And I can imagine that has a profound effect. But they believed that God not only could do this, but he would be faithful to do exactly what he said he was going to do. Now, up to this point, God had certainly made many promises to them and had kept a lot of those promises. And so this was one more thing that God was offering to them. But still, the faith that they exhibited in God in these promises is certainly, it's an understatement to say it's remarkable. So from this one man, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless on the sand as the sand on the seashore. Now it's interesting here because <clears throat> at the point when you read this particular passage in Genesis, he talks about kings and rulers, but he also talks about nations coming from Isaac. If we just look at this passage and take it just raw on its face in a literalistic kind of fashion, you you would think, oh, he is only talking about the Jews there. Because they are the ones who are the covenant people who came from Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then so on and entered into the promised land. And we'll see that in a week or two, Lord willing. But there's something more going on here. And there's a belief that they had that there was an even greater understanding. We see this in a book like Galatians. I'm not going to take the time to go back and read it, but because we just read it, I think, last week. But it talks about how Abraham is the father of everybody who walks by faith, who is justified by faith. He is the father of all those who are of the faith, who are of the faithful. There at the end of Galatians, it says the Israel of God. And I think that that's not just an illusion, but I think it's an explicit statement that the Jews are not just the people of God, but all those who live by faith, all who have been justified by faith, Jew and Gentile alike are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think there is a sense that she believed something like that was going to happen. I think there is a sense 
where Abraham believed something like that was going to happen. Our confession says so. Confessions are good if you have a hymnal. You can turn to page 7, or pardon me, 674. 674. Confessions are good. They keep us moored. They keep us grounded. Right? It's like an anchor. When we have struggles, we look to this thing and we can look here. It is not a, in any way, shape, or form a substitute for Scripture. It's simply a paraphrase of what we believe Scripture does teach in lots of different areas and topics. I think when we get away from confessions and covenants, it's what get, allows a lot of people to get squirrely in their theology. So it behooves us to come back to this often and regularly. There in the page that I told you, 674, you'll see chapter 7 right in the middle, and it says God's covenant, right? Do you guys see that? Well, it's worth reading the whole thing, but let's just look at paragraph 3 for a second. This covenant, the God's covenant that he made, is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament, and it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. It is alone by grace of God, pardon me, it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon the terms in which Adam stood in his state of innocency. Okay. For our topic, what's important to note is that he's two things for us here. One is salvation or justification. Faith in God's covenant has always been the means by which people have been saved. They're not two different ways or three different ways or four different ways, uh, different dispensations of means of which God has saved people. There's not a salvation for the Jews and a salvation for everybody else. It's belief and faith in God's covenant promises. And Hebrews chapter 11 is a clear example of that right that we're looking at right now. But secondly, it says it was revealed to Adam there in the garden before he was booted out of there. And it was given in types and shadows and in, it was revealed more and more and more and more until it became clear in the New Testament when Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all those promises. But don't misunderstand, because I've heard it said, taught like this before, that because it was shadows, they couldn't understand. And the emphasis and the focus is on what they didn't get. When instead, I think what the confession and what Hebrews is teaching us is that we should realize there's a lot of things that they did realize. So rather than focusing on the things they just didn't get, like that God was going to become a man, what they did get 
was that God is faithful to keep his promises. And if he promised to do something and made a covenant whereby his own integrity, his own worth, his own value, his own glory is at stake, then he is by no means going to break that promise or break that covenant. God Almighty is faithful and good and trustworthy and true, and they knew it. And so if God showed up and said, I am going to make of you a great nation, although Abram didn't know all of the details about it, he said, okay, God, I might not get it. That's fine. You said it. I believe it. They believed That even though he was to use this, it's funny to me, I'm sorry, it strikes me funny, that he considered himself as good as dead. (laughs) That's not not a very high estimation of yourself, (laughs) that all you are is good as dead. But he considered, at least at one point, that he was just as good as dead. But yet God used him in order to bring this great nation to pass. Now, verse 13. Verse 13 says, All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. Let me just reread this for just a second. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They were all still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. There's an interesting passage to me in the book of 1 Peter. It's just a little skip and jump over to your right if you want to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing to, again, a group of Jewish believers. They're not struggling with the same kind of um, falling away as the Hebrews are. Peter writes a more encouraging letter to them. But he does say this in verse 10 of chapter 1. Now concerning salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels long to look. They didn't, the prophets of old, before Christ, all of these people that we could go back and look to died without the promises. These prophets, they were writing these things down, these revelations from the Lord, and they were giving them to the people of God, and this word was going to be effectual, was going to have its work, whether it's a hardening work or a 
softening work. It's going to work. It's going to go forth. It will not fail. It will return back in exactly the manner in which God intended it to. But the prophets had no idea. I don't want to say no idea. They had a shadow. They had a type. They had some idea, but they inquired, who is this Christ? And when's he going to come? Right? Those are the two things. Who is he and what's the time? Who's this guy? When is he going to come? And that was never revealed to them ever. So all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised to them. The promise, the ultimate promise, of course, is salvation, right? Justification by faith alone, that they would be made right with God. But they died without having seen the fulfillment of that. They trusted right up until the end, but they never saw it in its fullness. Now, back to the Hebrews. The argument is a very strong argument. All these people lived, and you know their faith was sound. Their faith was a rock-solid faith of confidence, and yet they all died and never received the promise, but they remained faithful up until the point of death. Hebrews, you guys are struggling right now under all of this persecution, and it's making you feel like you should go back to, what are you doing? What? What are you doing? You have the fulfillment. You have everything they all longed to look into. You know the person. You know the time. You know it's Jesus Christ. He has radically changed your life. He has come and borne the wrath of God in your place. He has atoned for your sins. And now you, because of some persecution that you're going through, are going to abandon the faith that all of the fathers stood so firm in, even though they've never received what you have? What are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do that. You can't go down that road. They all received, or they all died still in their faith. And you, you're going through hardship. I don't think he's minimizing that here, right? He's not saying, oh, it isn't hardship. But what he is saying is all of these people didn't even have the fullness of the truth that you have. And yet you are now going to abandon that faith that they so desperately clung on to for their entire lives. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. You see, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. You see this over and over and over again. We're going to come to Moses, who was not willing to go back into Pharaoh's household, as it were, but yet was willing to go suffer with his Hebrew brethren. But even Abram, Abraham at this point, Abraham and Sarah... They could have laid claim to all of that land. They certainly had it given to them, but yet they never owned a piece of it, right? Except for that cave there in that field. What, Adula, I think the name is? It's been a while since I've read it. He owned that cave just so he could bury Sarah 
And then he himself was buried there. And you remember Joseph when he was, you know, going to die on his deathbed, or Jacob first. He said, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. And so you remember when he died, they had a big procession that went back there. Well, Joseph said the same thing. When I die, don't leave my bones here. Take them back to the land too. And it indicates that they were looking forward to the promise that God was going to fulfill, not that they were just saying, yeah, that's our land. We want to make sure that we hold on to it. They looked and admitted that they were foreigners and strangers here on this earth. I love the word pilgrim. It's who we are. We're pilgrims. Although we buy possessions, we buy homes, we buy land, and all of these things are good things, don't misunderstand me. This is not our home, beloved. We are passing through. We are a pilgrim here on this earth, making a pilgrimage to home. We are homeward bound. We really are in the best sense of that word. We're travelers. So when I ask at the very beginning, where does your mind naturally settle when you're at rest and not focused on certain tasks? I ask that because we have a, we ought to have a pilgrim mindset and our resting mind ought to frequently focus on home. Focus on heaven. Focus on our destination. Focus on the glories that we're going to receive when we're with Christ. Now, if I'm honest, heaven is a term and a concept that my mind goes to. It's one of the reasons my favorite passage is the beginning of 1 John 3, right? Love that passage. Because it focuses my mind heavenward. And it is a passage that even in my desperation, even if I'm really struggling, whether it's sin that I'm struggling with or it's just experiences that are happening to me, I can rest and I can sit back and go, what kind of crazy love is this that God would love me and call me one of his children? I don't have any idea what I'm going to be like when I get to his heaven, but I know this one thing. That when I get there, I'm going to be as much like Christ as I could possibly be because I am one of God's kids. Amen? And so I want to have my mind focused on heaven. It's where the patriarch's minds were. The matriarch, Sarah, it's where her mind was settled on. I think when we go back into the Old Testament and we read about these people who lived by faith in the covenant, the great motivating factor was they were going to be with God where he is. Right? It's the great promise given to us in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 when he says he saw heaven come down. And he said, I will be their God and they will be my people. See, the great hope for the believer is we get to be with God. We get to be with Jesus. We get to be home with him. And these people experienced something from afar. Now, we might envy 
God actually showing up and saying things to them. <laughs> we might envy angel, the angel from the Lord revealing himself to all kinds of different people in the Old Testament. But they envied us because we have the completed promises given to us in the person of Jesus Christ who came at the appointed time and did not go before the hour that was destined for him to go. Now these people, verse 14 says, they looked for a country that wasn't their own. and, And if they were thinking of some other kind of country, they had every opportunity to return. Right? Every opportunity to return. Abram could have at any point from the time he was called, I mean, he didn't even make it all the way there before his dad died. He could have just went back to Ur without ever getting across that fertile crescent. But he kept on and he could have at any point in time after that, Lot goes down to the fertile ground and he's like, all right, I'm left with the weaker, or the lesser portion of the land. He could have gone back then. He could have gone back when he feared just before chapter 15 and think, thought, Lord, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go back and go back there. But never once did he go back. Instead, verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. In Matthew 22... The Sadducees come to Jesus and they start questioning him. You know, they didn't believe in any resurrection, right? You know, those guys. Modern day agnostics, I guess. With a lot more religious veneer. That's basically who they are. And you know the story. They give that ridiculous situation of one woman... Who marries a dude, dude dies, marries his brother, he dies, marries a brother, he dies, marries the 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 brother, because that's seven. I was trying to keep count. I think that was seven. He dies. Now, none of them had any kids with her. In the resurrection, whose wife was she going to be? Right? Remember that story? Ooh. They got him now. Jesus answered them and said, I see him doing this. You are so wrong. I see him doing that. (laughs) Keep that one, Freddie. (laughs) You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels of heaven. For the resurrection, you, have you not read what it says by God? I am the God of Isaac, pardon me, Abram, of Isaac, of Jacob. God is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. God is not God of the dead, he is God of the living. God is not ashamed to be called their God, right? That's what our passage says in verse 16. He is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has gone even so far as to prepare a city for them. The city is a glorious heavenly one, right? In John in chapter 14, a passage that we all know super well. 
John chapter 14, he's looking out at his disciples. He's just done the foot washing. And now he's talking about his leaving. And he says to them, now don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Christ has gone and prepared a place, and that place is glorious not because it's heaven. The place is glorious because where he is, we will be also. It isn't about a location, it's about a person. The city that's prepared for us is the city where he is, where Christ is. Our hearts shouldn't be troubled, our hearts should trust in God and believe in him and have our minds focused on this heaven, this heavenly one, because we're pilgrims. What is going to get you through tough times here right now? Well, the thought this too will pass is a good thought as long as you know what it's passing to, right? I mean, this too could pass and it could pass to something a whole lot worse. But if this too will pass and it will pass on to that glorious day where we're in heaven and we're with him, then this life, this vapor of a life that we exist in is simply a means and a vehicle by which to get us into his heaven. And that is where our mind can and ought to be focused. In Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3, and again, these are all passages I know that you, you guys know well, but Paul says, join me in imitate, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have for us. That's good instruction, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing right here. He's saying, look to them, look to their faith. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, They have turned and become enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with their minds set on heavenly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. You see, their mindset is on earthly things. Where is our mindset? Heavenly things, because that's where our citizenship is. From it we await for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, when I was overseas, I got asked all the time about America. America, America, America. Everybody wants to hear about America. There's this one great little time where I was there in Scotland and and in the scheme and most of these kids, I mean, they had never really met an American 
And so I went out and was hanging out with them. And they were asking me, hey, do you have an Xbox? Do you have this? You know, what's your dog like? You know, and they, they like questions I would not have expected them to have asked, you know. But they wanted to hear about America. And you know what? Every single thing that I did there when I was overseas in Scotland was related back to the way it is here in the States. Couldn't help it. I'm at the grocery store. I just want to buy something. Everything looks funny and different and weird. Uh, What do I have to do? What am I going to figure it out? I'm going to try to associate this with something I'm familiar with back home, right? So that I can understand what it is that I'm doing when I purchase this thing. Beloved, we have a home that's in heaven. And instead of looking at earthly things and relating our lives with earthly things... Everything that we do in this life, all that is included in our lives here should be lived in lives of faith as we look towards heaven. And what we want to do is relate everything that we interact with here on this earth with that which is in heaven, namely Jesus Christ. So does your resting thought go to him? Does your resting thought go to Christ? Lord, what do you think about this? Lord, what did you say about this? Lord, I just love you and I think your thoughts are wonderful and I want to think more of your thoughts, Lord Jesus. I'd encourage you this week. Take some time. Get alone. If you can do it more than once, that's probably even better. And read on these passages that we've looked at about heaven. And maybe some other ones that come to your mind when you think about heaven. Take some time to read some passages about Christ. Specifically things that he says or how he talks about himself. That high priestly, um, or pardon me, that upper room discourse is a great place to go there in the end of John. But take some time and think about Jesus. Think about heaven. And pray, Lord, I want to be renewed in my mind so that more and more I am trained by you, by faith, that my resting thoughts will be upon you. And I believe that in that way and in that manner, not only do we get that peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds, like he continues to say there in the book of Philippians, but our faith is strengthened. And we see these patriarchs of old and we see them and marvel at their faith and we can join in imitating them as they looked forward to heaven, understood they were pilgrims, so are we. Lord, we pray and ask that you would take the words of this sermon here and just...